Can I pause for a second and, and just note that uh, we got Brian on here who's getting uh, Congressman Massey on, and our typical lineup includes like homeless people that believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> Welcome to the Brian Nichols Show, your source for common sense politics on the We Are Libertarians Network. The Brian Nichols Show is the fastest growing liberty podcast that brings together people from all means of political thought as we seek to have meaningful conversations about the issues you care about. At The Brian Nichols Show, our goal is to leave the audience educated, enlightened, and informed. And now your host, Brian Nichols. You know, I swear, folks, I'm not doing this on purpose. Uh, COVID-19 is is all that's in the news, and that's why I find it so important to have a conversation about that, and it seems, evidently, every single episode. Um, And by the way, uh, your humble host here, Brian Nichols, on The Brian Nichols Show, last week, we were joined by economist uh, Dan J. Mitchell to discuss uh, the the trade-offs between health and economics as we uh, look not only at COVID-19 in the uh, the short term, but also in the long term. And today I wanted to get somebody who's actually living this, uh, you know, every single day at, on the front lines. And that is Dr. Kyle Varner. Now, Dr. Varner joins the show today um, to really dig into a, a couple of areas. Number one, uh, discussing number, uh, specifically what drugs right now we're seeing uh, actually having some success in face in, in facing uh, COVID-19. Uh, amongst them being, yes, the, uh, the very controversial hydroxychloroquine, but also a newer drug drug that's uh, being produced by uh, Gilead Pharmaceuticals Remdesivir, uh, which is not FDA recommended and is actually promoted to be an Ebola drug, um, as you'll learn more in the episode today, but is actually having some success with COVID-19 patients. Um, we discuss public choice theory, different regulations that are in the way, uh, and a lot of other fantastic um, things to discuss here in the show today, namely how Dr. Uh, Varner, he is uh, right now taking part in a, a clinical trial um, to to test the uh, effects of hydroxychloroquine with regards to those in the field um, dealing with this every single day. And uh, it, it's it's a fantastic conversation. It really shows to where we're headed as a country um, in a post-COVID-19 world. So I want to have Dr. Varner on the show today to discuss what a post-COVID-19 world would look like. Uh, so without further ado, on to the show, Dr. Kyle Varner here on The Brian Nichols Show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Glad to have you here. And I'm I'm honestly so excited to have you specifically on, Dr. Varner, because as I was perusing through Facebook the other night, I came across your post um, and your post that was over on Facebook. Now, I'm going to have to share it because it was one of those posts. It caught my eye and it made me not only have to hit the reshare button, but I actually ended up I, I like screen captured your post. I shared it on LinkedIn and pretty much any social profile I could think of. And it started out saying, I just took uh, the first dose of either uh, hydroxychloroquine or placebo for University of Minnesota's coronavirus pre-exposure prophylaxis clinical trial. And I'm going to butcher these words here, so you're going to fill me in afterwards. Prophylaxis. Prophylaxis. There we go. I will periodically complete online surveys as I gather data. I am not aware of any clinical trials like this one. It is all online. The medications are shipped via FedEx. The study was designed and implemented in record time. And while I don't know what their budget is, it has got to be a small fraction of similarly powered studies done in a traditional way. And you wrap up this, this awesome post by saying the immediate future is very bright. The longer, the long-term future is extremely bright. And that I think right there, that message that there is things to look forward to. And you being a doctor who is now experiencing these clinical trials that, I mean, I dare say that sounds like a libertarian wet dream. If I ever heard of one of, of a at home, Libertarian, at home, libertarian, at home, um, testing for name drug here or placebo here to test its effectiveness. It's amazing that we're getting to that point. But before I put the cart before the horse here, Kyle, let's kind of start off of what 
got you to the point that you were posting that post there on Facebook. So obviously I mentioned you're a doctor and you're living in this, this medical field and specifically focusing that on Right now, what's going on with the uh, the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic here, not only in the United States, but uh, across the United States, and you've actually focused specifically as well in Latin America. So let's kind of set the stage here, if we will. So Dr. Varner, let's first and foremost introduce yourself to the audience um, so we can kind of get to learn a little bit more about your medical history and your background, but also a little bit of your your liberty story and kind of what brought you to being, uh, <laughs> dare we say, a libertarian maverick out there in the front fields promoting all this great stuff that the, uh, the free market will, will bring to the table. All right. Well, uh, I first got involved in the liberty movement back in 1999, and I was in high school. Um, and uh, I uh, discovered the writings of this guy named Harry Brown, and it uh, completely blew my mind, and it set off this kind of lifelong fascination with libertarian philosophy. And um, that quickly got me into Ayn Rand, uh, and I would say that the the writings of Ayn Rand really made me who I am today. And so um, I've been involved in in different capacities in the liberty movement since 1999. Um, During that time, then I also went to college, went to medical school, went to residency in internal medicine. And now my uh, my day job is that I practice hospital medicine, Uh, hospital medicine. For those who don't know, that's I'm an internal medicine doc who takes care of people exclusively in the setting of a hospital. So I really focus on people who are very sick and on managing those those conditions that are um, are severe enough to land you in the hospital. Um, and so that's that's my oh that's my bread and butter that's what I do for a living and obviously with the coronavirus pandemic well that that just falls straight into my lap because coronavirus patients frequently end up in the hospital. And so um, as this started to ramp up and as we started to learn that it was just a matter of time before these patients started showing up on our doorstep in my hospital, I started learning more and more about coronavirus in in preparation for taking care of these patients and uh, becoming very alarmed uh, based on what we were seeing uh, first in China and then in Italy and and then uh, in our uh, on the west side of my state. I'm in Spokane, Washington. And uh, the first real hot spot in the United States right, was in Seattle, right. just a few few hundred miles from me. So coronavirus became very important to me because it's central to what I do. And um, that's that's where we are today in that uh, I'm taking care of coronavirus patients along with all kinds of other patients who still we still have it. People get sick from everything else. Um, and I'm doing everything I can to help the tremendous effort to develop treatments for coronavirus and to take a situation right now where uh, if you get coronavirus and you get very sick from it, we don't have a lot really to offer in terms of things that will make you more likely to survive, although we've we're started to get some things. However, mm-hmm. uh, my goal is to change that as quickly as possible so that if you get very sick from coronavirus, there are things we can actually do to change your outcome, to make you more likely to survive. That's that's my main focus right, right now right. in terms of, of, of what I'm doing in terms of reading and contributing to scientific discussion and and um, and participating as a, as a research subject in a clinical trial and getting ready to participate as an investigator in another clinical trial. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and that's, that's also part of the reason that I think it's good to have a medical perspective because 
right now we're hearing so much out there. You know, you're hearing the um, the, the snake oil salesman approach that the, the left is, is painting Trump saying he's he's promoting this drug, this hydroxychloroquine as if if it's it's a, a save all and it's it's actually killing people. And then they point to the, the two couple out in uh, in Arizona who who ate fish tank cleaner because it had hydroxychloroquine. It's like, well, no, they ate fish cleaner. And that's a whole separate story that that seems to be a lot more confusing and a lot more maybe dark, shall we say, than originally it was on the, the surface level. But I mean, take that even a step further as we're recording today on April 17th. And I forget the specific drug. So I'm going to refer to your um, your medical expertise here, doctor. But um, there was a drug, I think it was in Chicago. And it was I think the company's called Gilead. And I, I, that sounds way too like, you know, Handmaid's tale But I mean, it, if it is, that's correct. But there's, there's actually positive outlooks right now in the stock market because this drug uh-huh. that they're using in Chicago, it seems that people are responding positively to that. Uh-huh. And, and so let's kind of start there. This drug in, in Chicago, but also hydroxychloroquine. What's the uh, the myth and what's actually the, you know, the, the real deal with these drugs? Okay, so let's start with hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine is a derivative of chloroquine. Uh, and this is a very old drug that was first developed as an anti-malarial. And now it's used hydroxychloroquine primarily in autoimmune condition like rheumatoid arthritis and lupus. Uh, and it's an immune suppressive drug. But it was found. So, so basically what happened is coronavirus became a thing in China. And the very first thing that researchers started to do is they got that virus in cell cultures. And then they started seeing if anything had what we call as in vitro activity against that virus. So they started basically taking all the drugs that we know that we have out there that we could potentially deploy and just throwing them at these cell cultures and saying, which drugs have an effect of inhibiting the virus? And chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine were one of many drugs that resulted in in a positive finding in vitro. So that means in 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 a lab in test tubes. We're not talking about in a human body. Mm. But that's that's where you start, right? Because it's cheap. You just throw the drugs into the test tube with the virus and some cells and you see what happens. And you can screen a large quantity of drugs and figure out which ones are most likely to have an effect. And so hydroxychloroquine quickly became kind of the favorite of uh, of these drugs that had been pulled off the shelf. Hmm. Uh, not the only one, but it became really uh, exciting or really, really intriguing because it's known to be an extremely, extremely safe drug. And the primary thing we're worried about in our patients with this drug is what we call QT prolongation, which is uh, a change that it can produce in the electrical system of the heart that prolongs uh, an interval on an EKG. It can predispose you to some arrhythmias, meaning your heart rhythm can change. Uh, Typically, this is in higher doses or when it's combined with other medications. That's the main side effect that we're worried about. There's also some retina problems that, that people could have, but we think that really only happens when people are taking it for a long period of time. And so uh, using it for a short period of time as a therapy for a virus that wasn't felt to be a problem. So hydroxychloroquine, very safe. And then these guys um, in France came out with a study where they showed that people cleared their uh, viremia, meaning their, their, uh, their detectable virus, quicker when they were on hydroxychloroquine and even quicker when a medication called azithromycin was added to it. And so the idea was, wow, 
we can pull these right off the shelf. We have access to these drugs. We can start using them. And we did. Um, and so there was a, a big problem because people started kind of hoarding drugs. Uh, some people were prescribing them for themselves just to have in case they needed them. And there were some shortages. We're still working through those shortages. But uh, drug manufacturers, because this is a generic drug and there are multiple manufacturers, have boosted production. And so those those shortages should uh, should should be solved pretty soon. Um, unfortunately, further data that we've gotten now has been uh, has been disappointing. A couple of days ago, a trial out of China showed that there was no benefit in uh, the in that trial. It was a small trial, and it wasn't placebo uh, controlled. But they did compare people to uh, who got hydroxychloroquine and didn't, and um, they. And I, uh, they, they basically didn't find any difference in survival, in time to discharge, or even in viral clearance. Now, is that, now um, really quick, so, now, should that be something that we should raise an eyebrow to? Because obviously it's coming from China. And, and we've seen a lot of information, a lot of data, not only in terms of just the, the starting off of this uh, this uh, disease in, in China, this virus in China, but also the, the numbers that were coming out. You know, now they just today, as we're recording, they just increased their numbers by 50%. And that's insane. Like yeah. 50% of their numbers for the death toll, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like, okay, well... Where were those numbers before? And then to this 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 test that you're referring to, I mean, does that raise any red flags at all on your end because of that? So yes and no. Uh, yes and no. Um, so yes, uh, I I think I, I I look twice at anything coming out of China, and anybody should, because uh, the Chinese Communist Party. I, I, I hate to say the Chinese government because I don't consider the Communist Party of China to be the legitimate government of China. That's the Republic of China. But um, it, the Chinese Communist Party requires all research about coronavirus to be approved by them before it's published. Hmm. Now, I don't see any particular motivation they would have to, to, to falsify or suppress information about a treatment. Uh, so uh, I think that that one study is likely to be trustworthy, but uh, yes, grain of salt. I want more data. And luckily, there are a lot of other trials in places that don't have censorship uh, being imposed on, on academics and on researchers that are going to be coming out very soon. And they're going to be higher quality because they'll have more people enrolled in them. They're going to be higher quality because they really are double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. And they're also going to be looking at hydroxychloroquine in different situations because the theory that I, I subscribe to is that uh, because I've used hydroxychloroquine in my very sick patients and I have not noticed anecdotally a therapeutic effect from it. They just keep getting sicker. It doesn't matter if I it, – it, it's not like – like sometimes, you know, if, if I give an antibiotic to someone with bacterial pneumonia, right, I can see that person get better and kind of notice like – this this worked right like their trajectory of the disease right. changes once i start giving the medication but i didn't I, I never saw that with hydroxychloroquine some people have reported to see that but with this virus you know how, how do we know they're not just seeing their patient get better like they would have anyway um so but uh the theory here that i that i subscribe to is that it's likely to be effective early in the disease that's we know for for example for flu medications like oseltamivir or tamiflu that it's effective early in the disease and it's not effective late in the disease. It's kind of like once the cat gets out of the bag, the medications no mm -hmm. longer help. But if if you're just getting started, it is. So that's what the the the, the study that I enrolled as a study as a research subject in from University of Michigan is studying it for pre-exposure and post-exposure prophylaxis. 
And what that means for pre-exposure prophylaxis, the study I'm in, is you take the medication before you've ever been exposed because you're at a high risk of exposure, right? I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm treating coronavirus patients, so I'm at a high risk of exposure. And then you see what happens. Uh, and so they're comparing a large group of people who are taking the medication to a large group of people who are taking the uh, a placebo, which right, I don't know if I'm taking hydroxychloroquine or if I'm taking folic acid. I will eventually know, but not right now. And mm. then with time, you will see if there's a difference in the number of people who develop coronavirus or in those who develop it, you will see if there's a difference in disease severity. Right. Uh, and so those are, and then the post-exposure prophylaxis is where you say, okay, I was taking care of a, of a coronavirus patient and I had some kind of an exposure, like my mask slipped off or, or I didn't, or maybe I was taking care of a patient who I didn't think had coronavirus, but then later we found out they did and I wasn't using, um, you know, the right PPE. So I was exposed. And so immediately when you know you're exposed, you start taking the medication. So the idea there's, – there's, for example, in HIV, if you get a needle prick uh, from an HIV patient, you can start taking HIV medications right away. And, and there's a 98% reduction in infections uh, as a result. And there's also an HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis for people who engage in behaviors that may place them at an elevated risk of getting HIV. They can take an HIV medication on a daily basis even though they don't have it. And again, it's something like 98, 99% reduction in new infections in those people who take that as prescribed. So that's the hope is that maybe even though hydroxychloroquine wasn't effective, and I think we can pretty well say in the very sick people, hydroxychloroquine's not effective. My hospital actually just kind of issued a new guidance. We're not going to be giving this anymore in the hospital. Now, now um, let me ask you about this. Now, Gilead Sciences, and actually, as we are, you know, in between here, I was looking this up again. So I, had to, I had to double check because I saw the stock market actually went up today because there was this glimmer of hope coming from Gilead Sciences where the experimental drug, and correct me if I'm wrong here, remdesivir? Is that remdesivir? Yeah, yeah. Hit me with that. So, what's what's this this um, looking as a possible promise yeah. in treating these COVID nineteen patients? Yeah. So, remdesivir is a drug that was originally developed to treat Ebola patients. It didn't work all that well for Ebola patients, but they kind of kept it on the shelf. And then it turns out that the mechanism of action of that drug against Ebola is also a mechanism of action that would interfere with the, the SARS two coronavirus. So uh, they started using it and started anecdotally seeing good results. And um, little by little, we've been seeing evidence, uh, clinical evidence, doctors talking to each other, and then some early trial results and stuff coming out saying, yeah, maybe this drug is really working. Now, it's an IV medication that uh, right now obviously is hard to get. It's not an FDA-approved medication. And so initially, it was given under what we call as compassionate use. So compassionate use is when you have somebody who's very sick, no available treatments, you can call the drug company, request compassionate use. They have to get the FDA to sign off on that. And to the FDA's credit, they almost always sign off on compassionate use requests. Uh, I think politically, it would always it would be it, it would be a disaster for the FDA to say no to a doctor, a drug company, and a <laughs> right. patient who, uh, who's died. So they they almost always sign off on it. It's a lot of paperwork, but they you know and there's there are roadblocks. It's not a perfect system, but to their credit. They're pretty good about allowing compassionate use. Um, but anyway, so it was used under compassionate use. Then because so many compassionate use requests are coming in, Gilead got overwhelmed and they kind of switched to this expanded access to trials. And now they're trying to roll out 
high quality clinical trials all across the country and the world. And um, once those clinical trials are complete, and it shouldn't be too long before we start to really have good data, then uh, we're going to be kind of in an, uh, what I would say is kind of a regulatory no man's land because there does not there isn't the time to go through the standard approval process. But there's this huge desire to, to roll this drug out in our sickest patients. But also we're thinking, well, hey, if this is working well on people in the ICU and we're not having a lot of safety events, and we're not, we're not having a lot of safety events with it as far as I can tell from the chatter among the doctors. I don't have access to any data from the drug company, but a chatter among the doctors, we're just not having safety events. Now we say, well, wait a minute. Can we give this to people early in the disease, people with mild or moderate disease who don't need to be in the hospital, but, and, but maybe we can prevent them from ending up in the hospital? And the answer is probably yes. So we're going to, I predict, find ourselves very soon in a situation where we've got high-quality clinical trial data rolled out in record time. I mean, it's amazing how fast they've rolled out the trials. And uh, we're going to have that data. We're going to know it works. We're going to know it's pretty darn safe. And now we're going to be in this position we've never been in before where, where there's just this massive, overwhelming public demand for this drug to be rolled out now. And what is the FDA going to do? And what is Gilead going to do? I don't know. I know Gilead. I know what Gilead wants is going to want is they're going to want to sell the drug as a commercial product stat immediately. And that's what the public is going to want, too. But um, and, and because there's so much attention, things are going to happen at the FDA level uh, and they're going to figure out a way, I think, to make that happen. And then we're going to have to see, are we going to be able to use that as a model for expediting new cures for other diseases? Uh, because uh, my biggest frustration in medicine is how long it takes to develop new cures. And, um, and, and it, it breaks my heart because, uh, you know, every disease, I don't care what, what medication you're developing, it's an emergency for a few hundred or a few mm. thousand people. Yes. And every month that goes by while the FDA diddles their fingers, uh, is, uh, twiddles their fingers, uh, every month that goes by, you know, it's people dying who didn't need to die. Uh, and so, uh, I'm hoping that we're going to see major reforms in the speed at which we can develop things. There, there is obviously a a natural uh, a natural delay in developing a drug. Like you have to conduct a study, right? You have to actually do the things that you need to do to make sure it works and make sure it's it's effective. But there's, but I mean that that delay is not nearly as long as the delay we experience in reality. And that's primarily because we have so much red tape. Red right. tape takes right. time and time costs lives. Yep. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because literally the, the past episode I had Dan Mitchell, um, economist formerly from um, the uh, the Heritage Foundation as well as Cato Institute. And now he's uh, the, the lead over at the Centers for Foundation, uh, for Freedom and Prosperity. And um, and we were discussing in detail about how literally the, the CDC and the FDA in – in many cases, were the the main culprits and in America from actually allowing there to be a real substantive free market answer when the demand was was raised. I mean, the fact that we ha were having a, a shortage of masks in America. I mean, third world country America. Here, you and I are, are doing a, a Skype call all the way across the United States, and yet we are able to do that. Yet we we are having a shortage of masks in, in easily the, the, the first world country across the United States. Like it, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. I mean, in the early stages of this, there were shipments of masks sitting in our ports waiting for FDA inspections. Meanwhile, we were sitting here and reusing masks and canceling elective medical procedures because we didn't have masks. I mean, it's it's crazy, right? It's, it's absolutely crazy. There were there were masks sitting in our ports and we were sitting here not having enough masks 
to go about our 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 business as as a hospital, uh, as doctors. Uh, what what kind of a a regulatory apparatus produces that outcome? It, well, it's obvious it's the one we have now because it I is. mean you mentioned earlier too, and this is something that I think needs to be focused on, Kyle, is that. Right now, there are people who they, they still have, you know, the heart attacks. They still have diabetes. They still have strokes. There are people out there who still have the traditional ailments that we know every single day that are mm-hmm. beyond COVID-19. And those right. people are also suffering. Those people are also not able to have that, that right to try these new drugs because of the fact that the FDA and the CDC often has so much red tape in their way that it does stop them from pursuing these alternative forms of mm-hmm. either medication or therapies or what have you. But now here's the, the, the glimmer of good, of good hope that's coming down the road. I say this because I'm also in my day job in telecommunications, and and you mentioned this in the closing of your original Facebook post, and that is that that there are reforms coming, and there there are changes because I think people are starting to wake up to see, like, well, why couldn't I just, you know, FaceTime my doctor if I needed to? Like, why couldn't I just, like, message my doctor and be like, hey, I think I have this. I've had this before. Can I get a prescription for this? Like, that, that seems so logical and so reasonable, and it honestly, it quite, quite really is, but because of the red tape originally that was put in place, it wasn't as easy as, as it sounds. So now, because of this this COVID-19 emerging on America and quite literally emerging on the world, I think now we're starting to see the people wake up and saying, well, why was it like this beforehand? Like, why why were there masks sitting on, you know, in, in these warehouses completely ready to be used, but sitting there because they weren't approved yet? Like, you know, you're talking about, um, you know, these different drugs that we're utilizing here in, in hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir. And like... Remdesivir, the fact that the FDA hasn't even recommended it yet, but we're here, we're seeing that it's, it's having, at the very least anecdotally, it's having some success in helping people. And then, you know, the, the question that has to be asked, and it's because it is such an easy question to ask, and it seems like the most common question to ask, and that is, why? Why is it that we are currently in a situation like this? So I'll ask somebody, being you, Dr. Varner, being in the medical, medical field, and you're witnessing this every single day, why is it that we are finding ourselves, you know, just completely, you know, stuck and burdened by this red tape? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the answer lies in a field of eco- economics called public choice theory. And uh, so public choice theory is, is the study of the motivations of bureaucrats. Um, and what we always find is that people act with their own self-interest in mind, and that includes bureaucrats who are interested in the prestige of their job, who are interested in avoiding bad publicity, who are interested in growing their budget. And so when you think about bureaucrats who regulate medical innovation, the number one thing they want to avoid at almost all costs is having given the rubber stamp to a medication that uh, that ends up hurting somebody because then it comes back on them and it damages the reputation of their um, of their agency and them. Uh, but what doesn't damage their reputation is delay. When people die of diseases without treatments – it doesn't damage their reputation the way mm. their reputation is damaged when they approve something that turns out to hurt people or just not to work. And so you have this kind of uh, of self-interest of the bureaucrat that is weighted tremendously towards being too conservative. Um, and uh, meanwhile, you've got uh, you've got the self-interest of the patient and the individual patients aren't very powerful. Um, so I think that that has a tremendous role to play because the bureaucrats are in this situation where their self-interest is uh, is 
is weighted towards being extremely, extremely conservative, and they don't have to take into account things like the deaths that happen because there was a delay in approval. Uh, you know, my my colleague at Liberty International, Dr. Mary Ruard, has written an amazing book about this subject called Death by Regulation, and she talks about, for example, the fact that aspirin was known by doctors to be something that we could use in coronary artery disease for many, many, many years prior to when the FDA gave it the approval and Bayer couldn't advertise it for that. How many people died because of that? Um, we also talked about, uh, or she also talked about beta blockers and how they were approved in Europe a couple of years before they were approved in the United States. And those ended up being an absolute revolution in treating heart disease like coronary artery disease and heart failure. And how many people died because of that? There's no blowback, no substantial blowback on the FDA for those kinds of things. I, mean, I have to say, uh, the audience's ears are, are ringing right now because Dr. Mary Ruert was on this show back, I want to say, uh, middle of last year to discuss that very topic and discuss her book, Death by Regulation. So, I mean, right there, you're, you, this is, it's sad, right? It's so sad because this is a reoccurring theme. And, and I mean, what's the expression? If history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, it certainly rhymes. And I mean, we're seeing that. Mary wrote her book, I want to say, what, 20, 30 years ago, Kyle? Correct me if I'm wrong, but like, that Well, must, it's actually only a few years old. Oh, is it? Uh, yes. Yes, okay, death by regulation is uh, is I want to say two years old now maybe, uh, so it's it's very very modern. Obviously, I'm, I'm I assume she'll update it for coronavirus um, because uh, there's obviously so much new material. For oh for sure, but the fact that like let's just say even two two three years, and that's my my brain shutting down because it's a Friday night as we're recording. Um, but the fact that it's only two to three years old that just speaks to. How, how crazy it is that here we are. We have somebody like a Dr. Mary Brewer raising the red flag. We have doctors like you and I've had Dr. Eric Larson on the show and many other doctors out there who are raising the red flag saying, let, like, untie our hands and let us be doctors. Let us live by the Hippocratic Oath. We're going to do no harm. We're going to make sure we're doing our part. Just let us do it. And that's two to three years ago. But here we are, 2020, we're hit with a pandemic, and all of a sudden, now the government is is now dealing in, you know, in two, three, four weeks in the past, trying to play catch-up, because they have basically established so much red tape that now they're having to go through and unwind it all, just to be able to function and respond to this pandemic. And I mean, I, I laugh, because if you don't laugh, you're going to cry, because it is so tragic, because we we have been the whistleblowers, essentially, you know, over here screaming, waving our hands and waving our flags and saying, like, listen, we're, we're trying to, to you know, present what the problem is, identify the, the, the problem, and give you solutions and it just seems like nobody is listening until now it's too late. And we're going to quite literally see hundreds of thousands of people across the world perish. And in America exclusively, at least, you know, we're, we're aiming estimates right now between the 50 to 100,000 people range. So, I mean, it's, it's to me, it's so frustrating because now we're actually seeing like, like firsthand, you cannot deny it. People are dying now because of the inaction or action by these bureaucrats. And it's tragic because we could have avoided all this, but because of politics, people have decided to put that ahead of the lives of other people on both sides of the aisle. And I think both Republicans and Democrat establishments have nobody to blame but themselves. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, it's But it's something going forward now where we have to, as a libertarian movement, we have to put forth credible assessments of the damage done by the red tape and credible, workable, politically uh, – possible, politically feasible – uh, reforms that are going to unwind the red tape. If we uh, if we don't behave credibly and and intellectually and pr put forth high quality proposals that are actually politically viable, 
then uh, we're not going to be listened to. We're at this this juncture right now where for the next couple of years, there's going to be a willingness to listen about this, but we have to be reasonable and, and not overtly, overly ideological. And we have to uh, put forth proposals that make sense to your average non-libertarian. And if we do that, then we can make tremendous gains. And I think we can accelerate the development of medical science in a way that uh, is is unprecedented and can save millions of lives o- over the coming decades. But we have to uh, we have to be academic, intellectual, smart, and responsible and credible when we do it. Uh, we we cannot sound like crazy people because if we sound like crazy people, nobody will listen to us. <laughs> we cannot sound like Facebook libertarians, is what you're saying. <laughs> We which cannot. Is, which is a hundred percent true. But you know what's, what's the, like- and, and this is where this is where the think tanks are going to be so important. You know, you had Dan Mitchell on. He's like a veteran of the think tank world. But you've got places like Cato Institute, uh, places like Heritage. Uh, these guys are going to be the ones who have the ear of the policymakers, who are going to be able to give the pol- interested policymakers well considered, thought out proposals. Yes. And and that's where I think the best hope comes from. It's from the think tanks into uh, the the halls of Congress. And and what also is exciting from, you know, somebody who's in business myself, and I'm, you know, I read all the different articles that are out there, and I, I subscribe to MarketWatch, and I mean, heck, even an organization like MarketWatch, they did, a, you know, what are the seven things that we're going to see positive come from COVID-19? And one of the top things, and they're already accepting it as the reality, telemedicine. And like, for me, as a right. libertarian, not only as a libertarian, but a libertarian in telecom, I'm like, thank you. God, like at least Uh they're now putting like they're putting the argument onto the the public's playing field as accepting it like this is okay now. And and it's extremely powerful. Yes, it's it's extremely powerful because people are waking up to like this is 2020. We we can do things now beyond, you know, what's the old expression? The worst thing you can possibly say in a society is we've always done the things that way. That's so true because we are in 2020. We are seeing technology increase exponentially. I mean, one of my biggest objections. So here we'll, we'll go into some shop talk here. One of my biggest objections when I'm leading with my sales team is they get people on the phone and they're like, Oh, we're not interested. And my sales team, their entire jobs are to try to set qualified appointments for these IT directors. Right. And you know, one of the things it's, it's, it's stupid. It's quirky. But you know what? Nine times out of a ten, it works. I say I have them ask, "How old's your cell phone?" And and you know I can almost guarantee nine times out of ten, it's going to be you know a cell phone a year or two old. And the reason being is because nobody's going to use a cell phone from two thousand and eight. Nobody's going to use a cell phone from nineteen ninety seven. Why? Because the technology is advancing so quickly that you can't keep up. Yet we have strapped our our healthcare providers into this 1990s medical you know regulatory world, and it is hindering them and it is slowing them down. But we don't even question when we get a brand new cell phone every other year because the technology is advancing, so it just makes sense to buy a new buy a new cell phone. And I use that for phone system analogy. I say your phone system, sir, is an antiquated legacy TDM phone system from 1997. What what's going to happen? God forbid it. All of a sudden, all your employees have to work from home and they have to be connected overnight. Oh wait, what just happened like two and a half months ago? So it's things like that that we're we're able to be proactive and think about things in the future. 
But because of the fact that we are in 2020 and things are happening so quickly, it just makes sense to, to get rid of the red tape and let the innovations happen quickly. And then, you know, if let's just let's just pretend, right? Let's take the argument that the, the left will often give and say, well, you know, you're you're just going to put people in danger. You're just going to create a situation where they're going to make this drug and it's going to end up hurting a lot of people. If that's the case, I mean, first and foremost, let's not pretend that drugs don't hurt people. I mean, we just had an entire Zantac um, callback after and Zantac's been on the market for like, what, 20 years? So like this happens all the time and we see it happen all the time. So what do people do? They engage in lawsuits. It, the, the system works. Let the system work. There's incentives and there there are, are uh, shall we say, uh, disincentive uh, structures built in place in the market. Let them work instead of trying to finagle and you know let the experts handle the, the finagling and just let the market work. It makes sense. And guess what? When you allow it to work, it works. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think anybody is out there advocating for getting rid of clinical trials. Clinical trials are the backbone of medical development. The double-blind, placebo-controlled clinical trial is something that we should be doing more of, not less of. And if we cut red tape, especially red tape surrounding telemedicine, and I can tell you all kinds of things about telemedicine because I've been involved in telemedicine and seen how the state medical boards harass telemedicine providers and all this kind of thing. And um, so if uh, – but, but what we can do is we can have less delay getting started with the clinical trial. We can have less cost associated with running the clinical trial, and we can have faster review of the clinical trial's results. And the result is going to be many, many, many more clinical trials. And what is the result of more clinical trials? It means more safety, not less. More safety because now we know more and safety comes from knowledge. That I mean, whenever you see a safety event surrounding a drug, it's uh, – I mean with the exception of things like problems in the manufacturing process, right. we, the safety things come from lack of knowledge. So if, what we need to do is we need more clinical trials. And if we can deploy telemedicine and if we can have uh, a regulatory process that doesn't strangle people, this is going to result in, in a multiplication of the number of active clinical trials and a multiplication in our, in our general knowledge. And that yes. it can only bring good things. What we're really talking about is, is a system that will develop more knowledge. And right now we have, as libertarians, a golden opportunity. And that is, you know, when, when you when you ask, like, go ask your grandparents, folks. Be like, you know, Grandma, when you were when you were you were growing up, what did you think the year 2020 was going to look like? And they're like, oh, you know, Billy, it was going to be flying cars and, and spaceships going to Mars every other day. And then they look and like it's you know, objectively, you know, not that different from when they were kids. I mean, yeah, there's there's innovations like the Internet and stuff and like things are growing, but it's not to the level like we're going to, to Mars and stuff. But right now we have an opportunity as libertarians, as as proponents of the free market to say, listen, look at where we are right now. And just if we were to just, you know, take back the, the red tape, let's just go 50 percent. Let's not even go all the way. Let's just cut half of it. Right. We are going to see 10 years from now. Just as we watched our cell phones evolve so quickly over the past 30 years, we're going to see that happen to our medicine. And it is going to be freaking incredible. So with that being said, Dr. Varner, I'm going to give you the last word. Let's leave the audience with a ray of hope as we move forward here in 2020, looking at the COVID-19 pandemic in America. You know, where where can we look for some optimism as we move forward through these very dark months ahead and uh, hopefully see some light on the other side of the tunnel? So... Imagine for a moment that you, uh, five years from now, you, you wake up one day and you've got a really bad rash on your arm. Um, so if that happened today, you'd uh, call your doctor 
and they'd tell you we have an appointment in two weeks and maybe you'd try some over-the-counter cream. Meanwhile, it would get worse and worse. Finally, you'd get into your doctor, your family doctor. He or she would take a look at that rash and say, I don't know what that is. Let me refer you to dermatologist. And um, then you'd go to the dermatologist in a month because that's – or two, depend, you know, because it's hard to get an appointment with them. And eventually, three or four months down the road after suffering from that, the dermatologist would figure out what that is give you the appropriate treatment and get you better. Five years from today, here's what you will do. You will go to any number of online dermatology practices. You will pay 20, 30 bucks, get on the webcam. The dermatologist will look at it. If they need a test, they'll order it and get it right away. Two days later, they'll have the answer. It will get your medication and get it taken care of, and it will cost you about 20, 30 bucks. So uh, we're going to see tremendous improvements in the accessibility of medical care, tremendous drops in the price of medical care, and we're going to see treatments that are not available today become available. And that's going to be thanks to the red tape that's going away and to tremendous evolution. State medical boards and, and regulatory issues have put a, a real uh, cap on telemedicine up until today, but that has all flown out the window. We're going to see clinical trials conducted with the help of telemedicine for a fraction of the price, and that means a lot more trials will be possible. It means we're going to find that old drugs can be repurposed in new ways to improve clinical outcomes. It means new drugs are going to come on the market faster with better trials because if you can use telemedicine and lower the cost, it means that your trials can be larger in size. We're going to see so many great things happen, and I think everybody alive today who makes it through this pandemic is going to live to see the uh, the tremendous gains, and, and we're going to experience gains in our quality of life and in many cases in our quantity of life because of that. So the future is bright. The, the long-term future is bright. We are going to suffer really uh, terribly over the next year to a year and a half as this coronavirus pandemic creates wave after wave of, of illnesses that, that shut down cities, countries, and, and it's going to be a global thing that's going to cause tremendous disruption. There's going to be, I think, a hunger crisis, There's going to, uh, especially in the developing world. Uh, there's going to be uh, tremendous political upheaval. There may be a war that, uh, that starts because of this, uh, but when we get through it and uh, we get back to some, some type of normalcy, what we're going to see is people taking stock of the bureaucratic state and the regulatory apparatus that, that held in check the human potential that was there that could have saved us from this. Um, and, and they're going to make tremendous reforms that are going to benefit the world. So I always tell people the future is libertarian. Uh, the arc of history bends towards liberty. And as we go forward from this, I'm tremendously optimistic that we will see a freer future with more science, more development, and that tremendous engine of human progress that, that is known as capitalism is going to keep on moving and keep on elevating our quality of life. And so we have a very bright libertarian future to look forward to, but we've got to get through the next year that's going to be, quite frankly, hell. Well, as I said when I shared your uh, your post on on LinkedIn, the darkness is always darkest before the light, but there yes. is light at the end of the tunnel indeed, and that is where I want to leave things with my audience this week. So with that being said, Dr. Kyle Varner, where can folks go ahead and follow you if they want to get some more positivity about where things are heading um, as we, we move uh, through this, this pandemic, this COVID-19 coronavirus that's upon us? My website is drvarner.com. I talk a lot about cash-based medical care, telemedicine uh, on that website. If you, 
are somebody interested in weight loss, my primary business is bariatricsecrets.com. Um, talking about weight loss, you can definitely uh, go there and you can uh, hear all about different ways that you can eat and live to make yourself healthier and lighter. Uh, otherwise, uh, following me on Facebook and um, always following Liberty International, that's uh, the organization which I serve as the uh, vice president for Latin American programs. And you can find us at liberty-intl.org and you can follow us on Facebook to hear all kinds of wonderful things about the liberty movement all over the world. The, those are the primary ways that, that you can keep in touch with me. Fantastic. Well, Dr. Varner, it was an absolute blast. Thank you for joining us here on The Brian Nichols Show. And uh, I, I hear a couple episodes are going to be coming down the road with you because there's a lot more we can talk about. Um, so we'll be sure to have you back on very, very soon. Wonderful. Anytime. Just let me know. I'll be glad to do it. All right, folks. So that's going to wrap up my conversation with Dr. Kyle Varner here on the Brian Nichols Show, part of the We Are Libertarians Network. And I hope that you got as, uh, as much out of it as I did. Definitely a lot of stuff that... Uh, Hey, it gives you a little bit of hope as we look forward to the future. And that's one thing I've tried to, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but one thing I've tried to continuously uh, promote here at the Brian Nichols Show is, is that of hope, of optimism, because, I mean, I don't know about you guys, I look at Twitter and I look at Facebook and I turn on the news and everything's just so dark and I don't want to deal with, you know, just this this negativity um, that seems to be constantly coming out from our, our mainstream corporate uh, media outlets. So instead, you're going to get a little bit of something different here at the Brian Nichols Show. And uh, yes, I'm like Dr. Varner on the show to discuss what the uh, the, the, the positives are going to be coming down the road, uh, namely as we discussed, tele telemedicine, hopefully, fingers crossed, cutting back some regulations and so forth. So if you guys enjoyed today's episode and you got some value out of that, what I'm going to ask you to do is to, uh, to share with, with some family and friends, as always. Um, and if you could, folks, uh, be sure to tag me on social media at bnicholsliberty. Um, love to, to hear what you guys think about the, uh, about the show and you know, about the, the, the guests we have on, the topics we discuss. Um, also, if you want, uh, you know, number one, you can email me at brian at briannicholsshow.com um, if you have any ideas for, for guests on in the future. But also, just to kind of get your, your feedback from today's episode, brian at briannicholsshow.com. Um, and if you haven't yet, folks, one last ask. If you could, go over to... Uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, I don't care, wherever it is, um, because if you just go there and hit subscribe to The Brian Nichols Show, I would be internally uh, grateful for that because that is how we uh, we get folks like you here at The Brian Nichols Show to be a long-term listeners. You know, you listen to one episode, catches your interest, and you're here for the long term. And I know, hey, there's a few of you out there who've stuck in for the long term, so hats off to you guys. Uh, much thanks. Um, so guys, with that, all that being said, I really had nothing else to add for the, uh, the rest of the week. Um, you know, Actually, that's not true. Let me rephrase that. Going ahead to Friday, because this is a special episode for you guys here airing on Wednesday. Um, and I know, right? It's not Friday. Bizarre. Uh, but as we uh, get towards Friday, Angela McArdle from uh, the uh, L.A. County Libertarian Party, she joins the show um, also to, to discuss uh, something she's working on behind the scenes. And you should prepare for this, especially if you're in L.A. County. Um, she's working on a, uh, a open up, uh, you know, get get L.A back to work get america back to work it seems that a lot of people want to do that but also you know hey we're taking into consideration the people who are or at risk don't 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 be one of those folks that's all i'm gonna say don't be one of those people no we do not all just want people to die uh, and if people think that well just direct them to this episode and of course to uh, last week's episode with dr uh, dan j mitchell so with that being said folks it's been an absolute blast thank you so much for joining us here on the brian nichols show for our special midweek episode but don't you worry we'll be back here on friday with Andrew mccardle for another fun-filled episode so signing off for dr kyle varner here on the brian nichols show we'll see you friday thanks for listening to the brian nichols show find more episodes at brian